1: who lives in a God who's chosen to love us. Amen. Hey, take your Bibles, if you would, and turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 21. We're going to start in Matthew 21 first. I want to just give us kind of a review of what's been going on up to this time. We are in the last weeks, and to this point where we're here now, days until Christ's crucifixion. He knows His time on earth It's short. He knows what's about to happen. He knows that he'll be betrayed. He knows that he will be tortured and crucified. He knows his resurrection is also coming, but he's spending the last few hours and days with his disciples. And so what he has to say is very important. Just think about it. If you knew that you had a week left to live, three to five days, would you not take some time to say some things that are very important? Or would you spend that time dwindling away watching American Idol? You would spend that time trying to share the most important things to you. And that's what Jesus is doing here. So as you just look at Matthew 21, I'm just, we're just going to browse through that real quickly. In Matthew 21, we see that Jesus' entry into Jerusalem was met by the worship of many people, his disciples and even children. He then goes to cleanse and purge the temple of the money changers and those who were misusing the temple for their own use. At the same time, you'll see in chapter 21 that he heals a blind man. And remember, those that were blind or lame could not enter into the temple and worship. And Jesus goes in to a man who was refused entrance into it and goes and says, you are healed, go and worship God. It's just a wonderful time. And this is one time where Jesus is now proclaiming himself as the Christ, as the Messiah that the Jews have been looking for. Remember, as we've gone through Matthew, for the most part, Jesus would heal someone. And then he would tell them, don't go tell anyone what happened. Or he would say, don't tell people who I am yet. But that time is done. Jesus is now into Jerusalem, and he's saying, I am the Messiah. I have authority over the temple. I get to say who comes in and who does not. I am the one who can accept worship. However, and we go on in verse 21, is that the Jews did not like that. And so we see that the authority of Jesus is challenged in verse 23 when the Pharisees come to him and say, By what authority are you accepting worship? By what authority are you cleansing the temple and healing people? By what authority do you do these things? Who gave you this authority? And as we go on through Matthew 21 that we looked at last year, is Jesus went and condemned them. And in it we see that in the parable of the tenants in verse 43 that Jesus says this kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a people producing its fruits. What we see is Jesus says you Israel the Jews the ones who mediated or through whom God's word came to you were supposed to tell others but you have not done so. You have been wicked. You have rejected me as your Messiah. So I'm going to take it away and I'm going to give it to a new people, which we know as the church. Now that doesn't mean God is done with Israel, but at this point he's saying, you are now being judged and condemned and you will be replaced. And that follows to where Jesus then in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, Jesus pronounces, remember the seven woes on the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders? Woe to you, he says, woe to you, because you've rejected me. Because of the hardness of your heart, you no longer are accepted by God. But listen to what he says to Jerusalem in verse 37 of chapter 23. He says, "Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent into it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. How often I wanted to collect you and protect you but yet I called but you turned deaf ears to me. Look at verse 38. See your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This year we start in verse 24, and as we go through, just as for a matter of review, in verse 1, we see that Jesus leaves that temple. And as he was going away, his disciples came to him, pointing out the beauty and the intricacies of the temple. Remember, we saw that the temple was very beautiful. The walls were made of great marble, some of them almost 40 feet along and 12 feet high and 12 feet thick. This is a beautiful wall and you might remember that the eastern wall of the temple was all covered with gold plates so that when the sun would rise in the east it would direct itself towards the temple and the sun would shine off that golden temple. People coming to Jerusalem could see the sun shining off that. It was beautiful. I don't know if you've ever been to the new Disney Theater there in L.A., but I hear it's kind of like that where it's a beautiful, beautiful setting. We've all seen buildings that we just look at and say, what a marvel. But in this case, this marvel was wonderful. But yet as they were pointing out, look what Jesus says. In verse 2, he says of chapter 24, but he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left hear one stone upon another, and that will not be thrown down. In other words, he says, you see how beautiful and glorious? There will be a time where this temple will be destroyed. Which led us to verse 3, where the disciples, as Jesus said on the Mount of Olives, came to him privately, they had a question. They said, Jesus, tell us, when will these things be? When will the temple be destroyed? And what will be the sign when you come and the close of the age? And here's something you need to understand. Israel's eschatology, now eschatology is a big word. And when we hear those ologies, you know, all of a sudden our eyes start to glaze and our mind starts to kind of wander. But eschatology is this the study of last things. Israel's belief, their teaching of the last days, Is that the Messiah would come one day he would come and he would judge the world the nations all those that have cursed Israel and Israel had been destroyed and been had been held captive and been dispersed throughout the centuries the Messiah would come and he would cleanse the land of all those that were non- Jews he would get rid of the Romans the Greeks and all those that were not pure they believed that the Messiah, the Christ, would gather all up the elect, the chosen, the Israel, and bring them from the four corners of the earth. Remember, they had been dispersed years and years before, and they would bring them all back together, and they would once again hold the land that they had during the time of Joshua. And then they believed that the Messiah would not only do those things, but he would set up himself the eternal kingdom as the Son of David, and life would be the way that God had called it to be. So in their view, they're saying, when is that gonna happen? If this temple's gonna be destroyed, then when is the Messiah, the Christ? And we believe, by the way, that you are that Messiah, that Christ. We saw that earlier in chapter 18, I believe, where Peter said that. Peter said, you are the Christ. You're the one that we're to be looking for. We saw the Mount of Transfiguration where God had revealed that. To them, when Moses and Elijah came, the glory of God shone upon Jesus, and God said audibly from heaven, "This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to Him." When is that going to happen? Then, now to their view, since Jesus was the Christ, they thought it was going to happen very soon. Life is going to get better. Have you ever had that? Have you ever felt that, man? Life is difficult right now, but it's going to turn the corner. You know, I can remember that when we were early married. Oh, man, we don't have any food in the pantry, but payday's coming on Friday. And Saturday, Friday night, Though we're going out to eat. We're going to enjoy life. You know, you have a rough night. You know, we've been fighting with colds and things like that. And you think, oh, boy, I hope tomorrow's better. And when the sun comes up, you're hoping it happens. They were very expectant. They were very desirous that the Messiah would come and set all things right. It was their desire. They were looking for it with a passion, with a zealousness. In Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and Zechariah, they had spoke hundreds of years before of that coming judgment, of that coming day when the Messiah would come and make all things new. Something they yearned for. And as we saw last week, their mind, though wanting the right things, they didn't have the insight they needed. And as we saw last week, as we looked at Matthew 24, 1 through 14, that Jesus gives them insight into God's plan. And God's plan was one of an unexpected delay. In other words, they thought the Messiah was gonna come and do all these things, but God says there's something different. There is gonna be a first coming, we call that the advent, the first advent, where Jesus came. But then what they didn't realize is that there would be a second coming. There would be a second advent and when the Christ would come. So in this way, there was an unexpected delay of his first coming that came in meekness to inaugurate the kingdom of God. And that's where we are today to his second coming in power in which he would judge those that reject his rule and reward those that embrace hence why our encouragement every sunday to you is would you embrace the kingdom of god see he is on the throne and his kingdom is alive today it's just invisible there's not a national political kingdom that we can point to it doesn't have a seat at the united kingdom it's not in nato It doesn't really fly a flag, though we have created one. The allegiance is one in which we embrace his rule. We saw during that unexpected delay that Jesus had shared with them that there's some general conditions that are going to be constant until that day. There are going to be wars. There are going to be conflicts within the family. There will be suffering. And we saw in verse 8 last week the key in which verse 8 said all these are but the beginnings of the birth pains. And remember we liken that as Jesus is likening the age or the close of the age as to birth pains. In which a woman begins her labor pains but yet the child is not here, it's just pointing to a greater reality. And even though those pains may seem terrible or maybe horrible for the moment, it may come in spurts. And what he's like and he says, you are at the beginning of birth pains. In other words, you have a long journey ahead. Now, I don't know about, uh, you know, I've never given birth. I've been there when it's happened. Sometimes it's been very, very long. But in this one, we're talking about a long birth pain. With that, Father, we ask you to come and join with us this morning. As we open your word, we want to understand what you're trying to say here. It has real meaning, not only for the disciples and for the readers of Matthew, but for us here today. So open up our hearts. Help us to understand it. Lord, let me speak the words that are edifying. And Lord, may we look to you, the author and finisher of our faith, and thank you for your word. And all God's people said, that was just the, uh, the opening, but I think here we're gonna open it up. As we look at it, that was the mindset of the disciples at that time. So when Jesus says that there's the beginning and there's gonna be a long unexpected delay to my return, it had to throw their mind off. But he continues here, as Emily read earlier, and as Kat read uh, even earlier before that in Jeremiah, that Jesus says the fall of Jerusalem is that the temple will be desolate. Is There's going to be a destruction that you need to be aware of. Now, the Jews understood the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. It had happened before. But as we go to Matthew 24, and I pray that's where you are now, we're going to start in verse 15. We want to share with you as we come, it's been the beginning of birth pains. There's some things that are going to be constant. The world's suffering, the suffering of the church, the suffering of Christians. Now we're going to go to what's called a sharp pain. And as you've been in childbirth, you know it every once in a while, there's just that sharp pain that gets your attention. In this case, Jesus says, here's a sharp pain that needs to get your attention as a clue of when the end is going to come. Verse 15, Jesus goes on to say, so, after he went and says, all these things will be constant, all these things will be normal, he goes on to say, so, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, Let the reader understand something here special is going on. He's saying there's going to be a sharp pain and you need to recognize what it is. Now, the phrase abomination of the desolation appears four times in the book of Daniel. And I'm going to ask you, take your Bibles and if you would, turn to Daniel chapter 8. And I want to show you because it's very important for us to understand this as Jesus is teaching us to understand what that abomination of desolation is. This has probably been one of those portions of Scripture that has been very difficult to understand. There's lots of different interpretations and a lot of different thoughts on what this means. So I believe the best way for us to do this is go through Scripture. So in the abomination of the desolation, he says it's spoken of by Daniel and let the one who reads understands, we then need to try to go back and understand what he's talking about. In Daniel chapter eight, verses 13 and 14, we see this. Then I heard a holy one speaking, Daniel is writing, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offerings, the transgressions that make desolate, and the giving over to the sanctuary, and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state." Now turn over to chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11, look at verse 31. In it, he goes on to say, forces from him, speaking of a ruler, Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offerings, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm. And take action. So we see in these two portions of scriptures that abomination of desolation. Now that's not talking about what Jesus is. What that's pointing at that time, it was prophetic, but for you and I it's historic. It was took place with Antichicus Epiphanes. He was the king of Syria. You might remember Alexander the Great. How many of you have heard the story of Alexander the Great? Alexander the Great was a great ruler. He took Greece and he conquered the world by the time he reached 30 or 33 uh, years of age and died under mysterious circumstances. But at one time, he had ruled over the world. And after he died, his generals then fought over who was going to take control because he he died without any heir. He died without making any plans. But in it, four generals then took over and divided up his kingdom. One of them was this man, Antichicus, and he became ruler over what's called Syria, which included at that time Israel or what we know now as Palestine. And the king of Syria, he attacked and destroyed Jerusalem. His persecution lasted from September 6, 171 BC to December 25th to 165 BC. And if you add that up, it equals up to the 2300 days. In 167 BC, in the midst of his persecution there of Jerusalem, of trying to bring it under his control, he, once, he, once he got into Jerusalem and into the temple, he erected an altar to Zeus which all of a sudden took away from the altar of God. He sacrificed a pig on the altar. And remember, swine pigs were very unclean to the Jews. And then he made the practice of Judaism a crime. There was not to be any circumcision. There was not to be any sacrifice. There was not to be any reading of God's word or the Torah during that time. And what he says is there's abomination. There's someone who comes and desolates. In that case, it happened in 167 B.C. After his death, the Jews celebrated the cleansing of the temple with the Feast of Lights, or what we now celebrate as Hanukkah. That's where Hanukkah comes from. But the abomination of desolation of those two scriptures happened at that particular time. And what Jesus is saying, let those readers know and understand and look back to that event. But then if you take your Bible and turn to Daniel chapter 9, look at verse 25. Then we see another illustration or another example of a desolation. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, where Daniel writes, says, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem. Okay, you have to remember there was a time in which Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel, was in Babylon And in it, Nebuchadnezzar had already destroyed Jerusalem. He says, from the time of going out, in which it says to restore and build it, to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moats, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. This is a reference to the fall that Jesus speaks of in Matthew 24. In other words, Jesus is that anointed one. If we were to do the timetable, we would see that it's the time in which Jesus was crucified. Now, take your Bible and turn to Daniel chapter 12, three chapters over. And this is the last illustration or the last example of what he's pointing to. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 11. And from the time that the regular burnt offerings is taken away and the abomination that makes desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. For you and I, this is still an unfilled prophecy. And we're going to get more into this next week. But as Jesus is saying, there's going to be a sharp pain. When you see the abomination of desolation that's spoken of in Daniel. In other words, you should be aware of this. It has happened in the past. It will happen again. He says, you need to be aware. This is a sign of the coming or the end. You see, for Jesus' audience and the early readers of Matthew's Gospel, there's both a historical component and a future component. They could relate to the horrors of the earlier conquest by Nebuchadnezzar, by the Medes and the Pers, by by the Grecians and by Atychicus, and the humiliation of the abominations. The past was to give an importance and a sense of urgency to Christ's words on the near future. As we're going to look though Christ's words were fulfilled in 70 AD. This abomination of desolation is something that has already occurred. According to Daniel Young of the Focus on Jerusalem Prophecy Ministry writes this, in 70 AD the Jewish zealots reacting to oppositions to Caesar's campaign began a revolt against Rome. A revolt which led to the Roman Legion soldiers from Syria destroying the food stocks of the zealots and the local Jewish population. The inhabitants of the city of Jerusalem died in great numbers via starvation. The Roman general Titus, who wound up becoming Caesar, encircled the city and began a siege of Jerusalem in April of A.D. 70. He posted his tenth legion on the Mountain of Olives, directly east of and overlooking the Temple Mount. The 12th and 15th legions were stationed on Mount Scopus further to the east, commanding all the ways to Jerusalem from east to north. On the 10th of August in the AD 70, in the Jewish calendar reckoning, the very day when King Babylon burned the temple in 586 B.C., the temple was burned again. Titus took the city and put it to the torch, burning the temple, leaving not one stone, Upon another. Thus, Jerusalem was totally destroyed, and as Jesus had predicted, not one stone was left upon another. When the temple was set on fire, the Roman soldiers actually destroyed the walls and tore apart the stone to get to the melted gold that we spoke of earlier. This is a passage of warning, it's a passage also of encouragement. The savagery, the slaughter, the disease, and the famine in Jerusalem during that time of AD 70 was monstrous. Mothers killed their own children for food, the uh, historian Josephus writes. Over 97,000 Jews were taken prisoner, and over 1,100,000 people died in that attack. I would encourage you take some time just Google AD 70. Wikipedia it. Go and read some of the histories of Josephus. This defeat by Titus ended the daily sacrifice. No longer has there ever been a sacrifice, a Jewish sacrifice from that temple mount. Temple worship ended. The Sadducees that we spoke of several chapters earlier ceased to exist. The Pharisees continued, but the Sadducees as a sect ceased. The Jews were once again dispersed across the world here and once again 60 years later in 135 when they would take one more attempt to defeat the Romans. But in here Jesus is talking about a historical, in their case future, but for us an historical event. Jesus is saying to his disciples, the temple will be destroyed. Their first question was, when will the temple be destroyed? Jesus answers them and say, when you see the abomination desolate, you've seen this before, you know what I'm talking about. When you see that, then the temple will be destroyed. And it was so. And of course, to this day, that temple has never been restored. A Muslim mosque that's out on a day, which is still a thorn into the side of the Jews. But in here, we not only see that Jesus says, This is when it happens, and then he goes on to give them a warning in verses 16 to 20 of Matthew chapter 24. He says, when you see this happening, in Luke he actually says, when you see the armies encompass the city, he says, do this, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is a task. In other words, if you are in Judea, in other words, we see that this is not a worldwide event. This is not at this point speaking to an event that's going to happen at this particular time. Next week, I'll get a little bit more deeper into that. But at this point, he says, those of you who are in Judea, flee. When you see those armies, when you see that desolation, get out of the area. And as we see, the majority of the Christians left in 66 to 68 AD. There were no Christians in the city at the time. They heeded God's word and got out. They went to Pella. He says that let the one who's on the housetop not go down to take what is on his house. In other words, in those days, the roofs for the most part were flat. That's where they would set, and that's where they would enjoy the cool of the morning and the cool of the day. And so he says, don't go in the, in, down through the stairs and through the house. Just go from rooftop to rooftop, get out as fast as you can. Don't take the time to get, you know, for us, if there's a fire, if there's an emergency or a flood, what do we do? We get all the things that are valuable to us, don't we? We get those things that we want to keep, but he says in this case, don't do it. Just run, get out of there. He said, the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. In other words, if you're in the field, don't go back to your house. Don't go back to your city. Don't worry, just get out. He says in verse 19, and alas for the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. He knows already how difficult it is for childbirth, how difficult it is to have children. He says, may be careful. It's going to be tough for those people. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. Now this passage is primarily based in Judea and Jerusalem. As I said before, it's not a worldwide event. And as I've already said, most of the Christians fled to Pella in the Decapolis, a little bit north of Jerusalem, of Judea. The Christians had abandoned Jerusalem and Judea between 66 and 60 A.D. So when the temple destroyed, when those uh, million and 100,000 people died, there were not many Christians left in the city. But what I love about verse 20, he says, even pray for protection. So in verse 16 through 20, we see a warning. When you see this, be warned. And when you see it, get out of town. It's going to be a destruction. It's going to be horrible. It's going to be monstrous. And history tells us how bad it is. But in verse 21, he points to something very interesting. For in verse 21, he says, For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. The fall of Jerusalem was a terrible, horrible event. There have been other events that have destroyed more people. Obviously, we think of the Holocaust, from what we understand, six million Jews. We see Stalin and his purges during the 40s, 50s, and the 60s, in which over 20 million people died. We can think of the Cambodia and, and Pol Pot, the Khmer Rouge. We can think of Sudan today. And in it, we see a lot of famine, we see a lot of war, we see a lot of victims. But never was there ever a time in history when a whole people and their culture was totally just wiped out. Judaism, for what we think of, their whole temple of worship, their whole center of existence was wiped out so quickly. And they were dispersed and have been relegated really to the background of history. As horrible that is, he points here to a great tribulation that in the future will be even worse. Have you ever heard of the term prophetic foreshortening? It's a strange word, but in here in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is prophesying of an event that they will see, that many of them may experience. Now, the disciples other than John as Tradition tells us did not live to see the event. Most of them were martyred by 68 AD. Only John, who lived into his 90s, to about 90 AD or so, lived to see this. But in it, as Jesus is prophesying event, it has a near and a far aspect. In other words, it's an event in which you would say, here is an example of something that's going to happen, but it's also going to happen again. See, the prophet does not necessarily see the events as separate, but as a unit. So Daniel, when he was talking about the abomination of desolation, he wrote about it in four different ways. He may not have understood exactly all of the instances that would happen. For most people, when they saw the abomination of desolation, they said, well, that must have been in 167 BC when Antiochus did that. But Jesus says that was one event, but it's going to happen again. And it did in 70 AD. But what I will share with you for today, and we'll go in more detail next week, is that that event in 70 AD points to an event that will happen again. You see, as the revelation unfolds, it becomes clear that it has fuller or deeper meaning. So for you and I, we see today an historical event, the fall of Jerusalem, 70 A.D. For the readers of Matthew and for the disciples, it was a future event that was designed to warn them, but also to encourage others. I want to share with you three things that I find in this passage. The first thing that we need to understand As we look at their question when will the temple be destroyed and this is the answer the temple will be destroyed when you see the abomination desolation happen when the Roman Empire encompasses the nation or encompasses the city and destroys it there you will know that's when the temple will be destroyed so get out of there what we see through this is that God is in control God involves himself in the affairs and the political things of man. Take your Bibles if you wouldn't turn to Psalms chapter 2. So many times we go through life acting as if God is just an observer of things. That he sets up in his throne and he sits there and he just watches what goes on that he doesn't actually get involved. I've, uh, I've spoken to people like that, I've got relatives that feel that way, in which God doesn't necessarily get involved in the affairs of life and politics. He just, you know, he just watches, and every once in a while he may do something, but for the most part he just watches. Thomas Jefferson was that, it's called a deist. They believe that, that God just created all things and there is a God, but, but what he's done is he created things and like a clock where you wind up an old clock. Some of you are old enough to remember when we used to wind up our clocks. He just set it down and he's just watching it as it ticks away. He doesn't get involved. Well, deism is wrong. It's unscriptural because if that's the case, then he never would have sent his son into the world, would he? That was the most greatest way in which God involved. But as we look in Psalm 2, we're going to see that God is in control and is involved in the affairs of man. Let's look at Psalms chapter 2. The psalmist says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? Why is it that they he try to do all these things? He says, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them up in derision. Verse 5, Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you, speaking of David, but pointing towards Christ. Verse 8, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Look at verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. As he's answering this question about when is the temple going to be destroyed, if you say so, he says there's going to be a terrible thing. I am going to send a nation against you i done so with Nebuchadnezzar, I'll do so with the Medes and the Persians. I did it with Alexander and the Grecians, I will do it with the Romans. But let me tell you, they may think that they are in control, but they are only vessels of my own making. In other words, when we look and we despair sometimes of the political culture, or the political parties that we have, God is in control. People are only in power and authority because God has allowed them and has put them in their place. See, God is just not some casual, unaffected observer of this world. He is actively involved moving the pieces. So God is a God of control. Hence, He tells them, I am in control. This fall of Jerusalem does not take me by surprise The second fact that we see from this passage is that God is a God of justice. The Jews, the religious leaders, have rejected him. Time and time again, we saw in Matthew 23, Jerusalem and its leaders have rejected not only the Son, but they have rejected the prophets by killing them, by stoning them, by imprisoning them, by torturing them. He says here, in effect, that you will not Escape my wrath, you will not escape my justice. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, says this rock, his work is perfect, speaking of God. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, a just and upright God is he. They have dealt corruptly with God. But they are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. So here's what it is. You think today that you may be getting away with rejecting God in your life and rejecting his gifts, his promises, his commands. Sin is good. I'm enjoying life. But let me tell you, God is a God of justice and he will only overlook sin for only so long. The Bible tells us this in Hebrews, is appointed unto man, what? Once to die, then after this, the judgment. See, that closing end that they're speaking of is a day of judgment. Jesus is coming a second time to judge the world. He will reward those that embrace, but he will judge. And the fall of Jerusalem is a judgment it is justice. You have ignored me, you have rejected me, I will destroy. Israel today is fulfilling the effects of God's justice. We ourselves are fulfilling the effect of God's justice in our life. But not only is he a God that's in control, not only is he a God of justice, but let me say this as a word of encouragement, is that he's also a God of mercy. He's a God of mercy. Exodus tells us that the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Why does this passage point to his mercy? Because to be honest, when you're looking at it, it was a horrible, monstrous event. But yet to his elect, to his chosen ones, he said, flee. When you see this, get out. My judgment is coming It's really the story of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot, get out because I'm going to judge this city. Get out and get out now. Get out quick. Take everything that you have. Christians received God's mercy in the fact that they heard his word. They understood what he meant when he said, when you see the armies encompass." when you see the abomination of the desolation. Don't think that that's a a, a historical event. It's an event that's gonna happen. You will receive not only the judgment on Jerusalem, but those of you who hear my word and obey will receive mercy as he gives warning. Now for many of us, when we think of God, we can almost understand he's a God that's in control. Now you and I sometimes limit his control, but let me tell you, your limitations does nothing to hinder God in any way. But when we come to think of his justice and mercy, we begin a little bit more squeamish. How does his justice and mercy work? I don't think I like a God of justice so much. I like the God of mercy, but the God of justice is too difficult. But justice is God's keeping his word and developing his righteous character. Mercy is God freely pardoning and blessing those who deserve justice. Jim Hamilton wrote, Without justice, mercy has no meaning. Leon Morris writes this, and I'll close. He says, Unless we give real content to the wrath of God, unless we hold that men really deserve to have God visit upon them the painful consequences of their wrongdoing, we empty God's forgiveness of its meaning. If there is no ill desert, God ought to overlook sin but there is no room for grace if there is no suggestion of dire consequences merited by sin so in here what I'm trying to share today as God shares with them the end of the temple the beginning of the sharp pain in the end of the age God shows judgment but yet he also shows his mercy to those that have it i believe the importance of this scripture is that those readers who read and understood could warn and encourage those hey judgment is coming get out of the city the messiah is here do not reject him for if you reject him judgment is holding over your head as paul says in second corinthians knowing The fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Do you have a healthy fear? Do you recognize that God is in control? That he is a God of mercy, but yes, he's also a God of justice. They recognize it. They acted on it. To the disciples and the initial readers and hearers of Matthew's gospel in the first century, this was a prophetic event. It actually happened. For us today, it's a historical fact that points to a future event. Next week, I'm gonna share with you as we continue as Jesus gives a warning of the great tribulation that will affect our future. But as closing words, Knowing the fear of the Lord, can persuade me.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org.